This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, it was estimated that more than 4 billion people, or about half the world's population, watched the Queen's funeral last night. How many of those viewers wished they were watching it from Australia, one of the countries lucky enough to remain in the Commonwealth and the monarchy? The death of Queen Elizabeth was a reminder that the best places in the world to live are all former colonies of the British Empire – Australia, New Zealand, the United States, Canada and India. They retain the institutions, customs and values that made the British Empire a net force for good in history. The Commonwealth was created in 1926 to help ensure those values would survive despite the rapidly diminishing power of the empire. The Commonwealth, an association of states of equal status, became Elizabeth's most significant task and is now her greatest legacy. In her Christmas Day message in 1953, Queen Elizabeth said, the Commonwealth was, quote, an entirely new conception built on the highest qualities of the spirit of man, friendship, loyalty, and the, des the desire for freedom and peace." Unquote. Is there anyone anywhere in the world who finds those ideals offensive? Queen Elizabeth remained remarkably true to these qualities throughout her life. Visiting Australia in 2000, she said, quote, I know that the fairness and decency for which this country is right rightly renowned will mean that continued efforts are made to ensure that this prosperity touches all Australians. It remains a sad fact of life that many Indigenous Australians face a legacy of economic and social disadvantage. Others, particularly from rural areas, feel left behind. The country's response in trying to find ways of helping all Australians to share in the country's growing wealth will require patience, determination and goodwill from all members of the community." Unquote. It was rare for her to make such a comment, but it was true to the values she personified as the head of the Commonwealth. 
She didn't admonish and nor did she intervene. She simply and gently offered an optimistic hope that a brighter future could be created by those empowered to do so. That optimism is not shared by the award-winning, internationally successful journalist and broadcaster Stan Grant. Grant's career goes back 30 years. He's worked in Australia, Hong Kong, Abu Dhabi and China and is now the host of Q&A on ABC TV. He has for much of that time made his aboriginality central to his character and identity, which has obviously not impeded his success. Some might say it has even boosted it. Such is the goodwill most Australians feel towards their Indigenous brothers and sisters. Ten days after Elizabeth died, Grant published a lamentable story about how he was not allowed to talk about, quote, colonisation, empire, violence about Aboriginal sovereignty, not even about the Republic, unquote. This caused him to have swirling emotions which were making him, quote, short of breath and dizzy, unquote. Grant should consider himself lucky. At least he's not a woman in an Aboriginal community trying to protect herself and her kids from drunken violence and sexual assault. Grant may imagine he has a claim to victimhood, but he has achieved enormous su success in life despite it. By valuing his victimhood status above his success, he is not helping others in far less fortunate circumstances. This is what the Queen profoundly understood, that there is more joy and satisfaction in service than there is in self-pity. She held these truths to be self-evident, and even if they weren't always apparent to all observers during her reign, especially immediately after the death of Princess Diana, they were abundantly obvious during the funeral service last night, especially to Prince Harry. As Hannah Betts observed in the Telegraph of London, quote, his heir was of a man tormented, surrounded by, yet profoundly alienated from, the family he marched alongside. His demeanour suggested he had a sense of all that he has given up for an already waning la-la land celebrity and some sketchily philanthropic future, unquote. It's unlikely that he spent the service taking mental notes for his forthcoming expose on the royal family, which is part of a $20 million book deal he and his wife, Meghan Markle, recently signed. Like most anti-monarchists around the world, the Republican movement in Australia made a massive miscalculation when it envisaged the values which Queen Elizabeth espoused would die with her. If anything, they've been bolstered. That's why so many people tuned in for the funeral. There were times when you had to remind yourself that this perfectly planned and executed extravaganza was just one person's funeral. But really it wasn't, especially in constitutional monarchies like Australia. When she accepted her role as queen in 1952, Elizabeth promised to dedicate her whole life to the service of the, quote, great imperial family to which we all belong, unquote. That includes you, Harry, and you too, Stan Grant. And 
It includes you and me, which is why so many of us were glued to the procession of well-wishers past the coffin while she lay in state for three days at Westminster Hall, and why so many of us tuned into the funeral service. I'd argue that many of, the, many of us in Australia, as members of that great imperial family, felt more a part of the service at, we at Westminster Abbey, even from all these thousands of kilometres away, than United States President Joe Biden did, and he was actually there, although he was conspicuously seated in the nosebleed section. The Queen reportedly helped plan much of this 12 days of mourning and funeral service, and it was as stylish as it was solemn and celebratory. But she had nothing to do with this aspect of the seating plan. As it turns out, the Bidens got stuck in traffic on the way to the service and were punted back to the 14th row for being late. This appropriate and deeply symbolic reward for tardiness, one imagines, would have amused the Queen immensely. My first guest tonight, British-born environmentalist Zeon Lights, was described by The Telegraph in London in 2015 as, quote, Britain's greenest mum. When she and her husband Aaron became parents for the first time in 2011, they despaired about how much parenthood encouraged them to enlarge their environmental footprint. So Zeon spent four years writing a book, The Ultimate Guide to Green Parenting, which contains advice about everything from vegan diets to education and emotional well-being. Naturally, she turned her environmental zeal into a career. She co-edited a magazine for green parents, then in 2018 became a spokeswoman for Extinction Rebellion, appearing regularly on British television. Then things got interesting. In October 2019, she was invited onto The Andrew Neil Show and asked if she believed the claim made by Extinction Rebellion co-founder Roger Hallam that unless climate change was halted, six billion people would die. She could not honestly defend the claim, but nor, as the official spokeswoman, could she deny it. She later recalled, quote, all I could do instead was flounder under the hot glare of the studio lights for what felt like an eternity. Even now the memory of it makes me shiver, unquote. Lights left Extinction Rebellion soon afterwards and co-founded Emergency Reactor, a lobby group promoting the green credentials of nuclear energy. She was also appointed the UK director of a group called Environmental Progress, which had been founded by Michael Schellenberger, one of the most rational and sensible environmentalists in the world. Both Lights and Schellenberger are speaking at the CPAC conference in Sydney on October 1 and 2. And I am absolutely delighted to say Lights joins me now. Zion, welcome. Hi, thank you for that immense introduction, Fred. <laughs> Zion, let's start with your own environmentalism. How did you become an environmentalist? I mean, it started when I was very young, you know, I was just a very conscientious child and we learned about, you know, recycling at school and global warming. And I, yeah, I used to try and get my parents to recycle bottles and things, you know, back then it was quite difficult. Now you can just sort of leave things out on the curb and they get collected, but you couldn't when I was growing up. And I was just very worried about, you know, um, the degradation to the planet. So it sort of 
went from that to then went to university and I got involved with actual official campaign groups. And yeah, the rest is history. Well, tell me about what you learned at school, because that, that's quite a topic here in Australia. I mean, you, you might disagree with me, but we sometimes we think that a lot of the environmentalism being taught in schools is actually indoctrination. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think when I so when we were learning about global warming, not as much was known about it. I think now there's a lot more awareness. To be honest, my although I learned about it at school, my kind of fear and uh, fear of it came from green groups. So I remember getting um, leaflets through the post from Greenpeace, and that that was what really scared me. And I remember a television campaign that would tell you to turn off the lights because everything was going to flood. Otherwise, I don't know if that was a government campaign or what. I was a child, but I was very afraid those adverts, you know, telling me I might not have a future. So you could see some of that happening, you know, 30 years ago. But now I think there's a lot of, lot more science on it or a lot more clear on what actually is the problem or what needs to happen. To me, it's as simple as we just need to get clean emissions. We need to change where we get our energy from. I don't think that's problematic because we're fully capable of doing it. Some countries have already managed to do it. It means we don't have to lose our um, high quality lifestyles. But also it's better, even if you don't care about climate change, it's better for the environment in terms of pollution. You know, air pollution from fossil fuels, you know, is very um, bad, bad for people. It kills millions of people a year something that hardly ever gets talked about for some reason. We always talk about this many people might die from climate change. Well, people are dying right now from fossil fuels. You know, we don't need to use them. So it just seems to me that um, that's become my focus anyway. And it's a lot more of a positive message than a, a lot of what you get around environmental and discussion and climate change now. Well, the, indeed, that positivity is something that's missing from a lot of the environmental movement. Uh, just before we move on to, you know, how we achieve our, our mutual goals in this, in this area, I just want to dwell on your environmentalism just for a bit longer. I mean, now that you're a, a, an advocate for nuclear, has your passion to save the planet diminished or is it just the same? It's the same, but I'm not as despairing as I was. Even in Extinction Rebellion, we're still getting quite despairing because you're around people that are despairing and they talk about grief and they talk about... Um, the world ending. And even though I, I never, you know, I never believed that I never fell for that. When you're around it all the time, it does impact you. And it was, yeah, just getting really quite depressing, to be honest, when actually, we, I think we've got we've got to accept that things are complicated, like nothing is that simple, right? Fossil fuels, yes, they have contributed to climate change, they have contributed to bad air pollution and lots of other things that are bad, but they also have done good things. They have enabled us to develop, to have infrastructure, to have hospitals, to have a high quality of life. Both those things are true. No one deliberately said, let's let's do things that impact the planet negatively. Like just being alive has an impact that's unavoidable. Where you live used to be trees. That's unavoidable that you know that's we have an impact living on the planet i just think we should minimize it where we can but it doesn't have to be done in this kind of self-sacrificing way which i used to promote because that's what traditional environmentalism focuses on and you just kind of get swept away with that you get sucked into that it's very hard to have a different narrative which is why i kind of stepped out of it and have set up my own thing where we can have those discussions because they don't happen within the movement and the movement is what um, drives all the discussion on climate change and net zero and all of that. And actually, I don't think a lot of it's coming from the right angle. When you, when you say self-sacrificing, would you agree that there are elements of environmentalism that, are, that border on being religious? 
definitely. I mean, I, I was, I've been around these people a lot. Definitely. It was not that for me, but as I say, those kind of qualities sleep in because that's your community. So, I mean, I wrote an entire book about living with a low carbon footprint. And now I say to people, you can do that if you want, but you don't need to give things up, uh, you know, in a kind of self-sacrificing way. This is not about martyrdom. This is not about feeling bad. We have, we should be happy that we have everything that we have, that we have high infant um, survival rates, you know, that we don't have to contend with uh, infectious diseases because we have vaccinations or all of the things, all the treatments and hospital care and all of the things that we have because we developed, because we burned a lot of fossil fuels. Now we should just stop because there is a better solution. Like even if, again, you don't care about climate change, maybe you don't even care about air pollution. The nu nuclear energy use is such a small land footprint. It's so energy dense. Uranium is so energy dense. Tiny amount versus a ton of coal, a tiny amount. This just makes so much sense to me because even if we all keep pushing that those lifestyles and here it's you know across Europe it's really crept in out of the environmental movement now into just ordinary life everybody's kind of trying to do all this live with less do less and and again if people want to do that then then fine but I don't think that should be the predominant message because actually we are always going to have more we are, look at historically we are always going to use more energy so over here lots of people are buying electric vehicles now EVs massively taken off across Europe but, you know, are they better if they're being charged with fossil fuels? We, we need exactly. lots of energy. Yes. We're always going to need lots of energy. Yeah. When I was growing up, you didn't really eat. Everyone didn't have a laptop and a phone. You know, it wasn't it's not even that I'm that old. It's just generational. It just changed overnight. We don't know what the next technology might be that changes lives overnight. But we should be prepared instead of saying, well, now, you know, you have to ration how much energy you use because. Because, I mean, that's a bad idea. And it is happening now here. We're, we're talking about rationing. It's happening in Germany because we're in this energy well, crisis. Let, let's get we to didn't the, think well, about our energy needs. Let's get to the rationing in a minute. I just want to get your thoughts on uh, how clean nuclear is. Speaking as an environmentalist, how good is nuclear as an option? It's brilliant. It's so clean. I mean, you can see my slightly um, provocative poster up there. But it's it's good for getting a conversation going because it's not the perception that people have about nuclear energy. They've been led to believe that it's polluting and, and the radiation is so dangerous and the waste is so bad. And I used to believe all these things too. Now I know that the waste is very minimal. It is very well stored, very well managed. In fact, um, when the Fukushima Daiichi power plant meltdown happened in Japan in 2011, they had waste stored on site. And it was not damaged. And, you know, that that meltdown did not harm anybody. Nobody died from that meltdown. It's another thing people uh, don't realize that the deaths were from the, the tsunami um, and the earthquake. I mean, yeah, and radiation, radiation exists in everything. Um, you know, I'm kind of embarrassed that I used to be so afraid of radiation. Living things contain radiation. There are parts where I live here in, in England where if you live, you know, in, in Cornwall, in slightly elevated land because there's more um, uranium in the ground, it's actually more radioactive to live there. You know, the, all of these kind of facts are, are true, but we're not taught them. We don't learn them. So all you hear is the kind of Simpsons language of, you know, the the waste is an acidic, goopy green liquid that spills everywhere. The nuclear worker is lazy and doesn't know what he's doing, which, by the way, if you ever meet these engineers that work in nuclear, they're the complete opposite. They are sticklers for detail, like absolute sticklers um, and very careful about ev everything 
um, that they do. And um, yeah, so and how, who's much the biggest success, how much success are you? Person in the Simpsons, Mr. Burns. Like this was very influential over here in how we think about nuclear. It still is here, I have to say, Zion. How much success are you having in persuading people um, that these are all myths? Well, I'll tell you what, actually, when I started out, it was only a few years ago, as you say, originally with Michael Schellenberger, then I decided I wanted to do something much more Europe, European focused because he's focused much more on America. And, you know, it's just um, this, this, is, this is where I live. This is where I understand the culture and how people uh, talk about things and what they care about. So I started out just having stalls in London and big cities like Bristol, handing out bananas with like 20 volunteers. We'd hand out hundreds of bananas in a day. And each banana would say, do you know it's radioactive? And people would like jump and drop it and get really embarrassed. But then they'd, because they'd be laughing and they'd what have you done to the banana? And then kind of realizing they've clearly not done anything to the banana. What's going on here? We'd have a conversation about it and they'd realize their fears were not founded on evidence, and actually 99% of those people, as we handed out hundreds of bananas, multiple events, 99% of them would go away saying, thank you for informing me, I like nuclear actually. But originally, if you'd go up to them and you'd say, what's your view on nuclear? They'd say, it's bad. And then I'd say, why? And they wouldn't be able to say why. This is really interesting. Or they'd say, the industry's bad. I'd say, why? Oh, we're not sure. Doesn't waste kill people? It's never killed anyone. Fossil fuel waste is stored in the Earth's atmosphere. Why don't we talk about that? And so these kind of talking points actually had a huge difference. And so that, that's one example on the ground where I was like, wow, people are actually really, really receptive. Obviously, I've been in groups where they're really anti for a long time. So I kind of thought, okay, this is good because that means that small minority, but loud, loud minority of anti-nuclear lobbyists, they've been very successful, but actually most people are kind of on the fence and they just want to know the, what the truth is. But also then I started taking those discussions higher up to politicians, to journalists, to editors. And I found, again, very similar results. Very few people who are actually just ideologically against in a kind of religious way where you can't have a discussion. There's very few people. But the problem is they had dominated the narrative for so long. As soon as we started challenging that, it's been changing. And now we have a plan to build um, new reactors, finally. Well, well, we might have to get you to walk the streets of Sydney with handing out bananas and see what happens. Britain, now just getting back to uh, the, the crisis in Britain, though, Britain gets currently about 19% of its energy from nuclear. We all know that Britain is facing a seriously difficult winter, um, given the price and shortage of coal and gas. How much worse would it be in Britain this winter if not for nuclear energy? Oh, well, it would be a lot worse, wouldn't it? 19% is a lot of energy. People aren't really realising this yet. Um, we're getting energy bills, electricity bills that are quadruple. So businesses are having to close. People are literally saying they cannot pay their bill. They cannot put the heating on this winter. It does get very cold here. Um, so we're finally having this discussion. And there's actually this video that was circulating recently of um, – a, a, an old uh, coalition leader from the Liberal Democrat Party, which is different to your 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 Liberal Dems, the Lib, Liberal Party there. And uh, this in this video, Nick Clegg says, "Nuclear, it will take ten years to come online. We don't need it." And this video was from ten years ago. So this person had posted it saying, "If we had this now, we wouldn't be in an energy crisis." So you know, the decisions were made deliberately because people can't think ahead of just a few years. Um, and suddenly that is, everybody's talking about that because people care about their their wallets, essentially. And there's another thing which is, um, it's come from the environmental movement. This, these are uh, myths that 
oh, it's really expensive. No, no, no. Now it's expensive. It's expensive not to have nuclear. So before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the cheapest electricity in Europe to consumer was in France, where they have over 70% nuclear. Because yes, there is an upfront cost and it costs a lot initially. So do renewables. Renewables also subsidized. Once that cost is in there, it's in there. And you've got 60 years of clean energy, 60 years at least, which is why well, a lot of our reactors are shutting down now. They're old. That's that's what I, I just wanted to ask you one last question before you go. And that is related to what Nick Clegg said 10, 10 years ago. You know, Australians are a bit complacent about this. But as you say, there is pretty much a 10 year lead time on this. Do you think Australia is, is leaving it too late? No, I actually think that you are better placed than a lot of other countries. So in Britain, we have this ambition now to build eight new reactors and hopefully then more. It is taking us a long time. I have been to these sites. I've been to Hinkley. I've been to Sizewell and I've spoken to workers there. And I've said, why is it taking so long? In Japan, the average time, three to four years to build a new reactor. I said, what's going on? It's the same technology. And they said, we don't have the workers because we don't have an industry that they're coming from. Now, in, in Australia, my understanding is you have a lot of coal power firepower stations. So you have a lot of workers and they are very similar jobs. There might be some training needed, but a lot of these people are builders and welders. Yes, some are nuclear engineers, but a lot of them are just people that can just get concrete in the ground. You know, we have a deficit of that. So we're struggling. So anytime someone goes off sick, which we've had with the pandemic, we've had people off sick, we've had people uh, quit their jobs or move abroad or whatever. We have a problem of deficit that causes delays. Um, and you wouldn't have that. So there's a, and you also have the uranium there, so you don't have to import it. Well, that's you have to right. Pay those yeah. costs. You yes. have a, you have an entire system from where I'm sitting, and you have. So there was just a report as well. Um, it was a Department of Energy report from America that looked at the coal-fired power stations in America. Uh, all of them, even the ones that have been closed for a long time, and they found that 80% of them are perfect sites to put new reactors at. So that's right. a huge number. So you'll, you'll, you'll have the same thing there where actually you even have the infrastructure. So we don't have that. We have a couple of places where these old power stations are and we can put a couple of new reactors there. And we also don't have, you know, a huge amount of land. So we have challenges that you don't have. Um, from from my perspective, you could do it very quickly. France did it in, what, 12 years? They built over 50 reactors. They decarbonized in the 80s. You could do it in under 10 years if you really wanted to. You would be completely independent. You'd probably be sending energy to us at this rate because we're desperate. Well, <laughs> so, um, I was yeah, expecting, is, I was expecting so a positive message from you, Zeon, and I uh, certainly got it. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you, Zeon, and I'm looking forward to hearing you at CPAC. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Zeon Lyatz, who will be speaking at CPAC in Sydney on October 1 and 2. Other speakers at the conference include American hip-hop star Zuby, Michael Schellenberger, Nigel Farage and Tony Abbott. For tickets, go to cpac.network. Well, we all know that carbon dioxide is the gas that is causing global warming. But did you know that it is also causing COVID? That's right, the desperate panic merchants at the ABC have found another reason to be afraid of this invisible odorless gas that until recently was known as an essential part of life on Earth. But that was before leftist journalists realized they could base their whole careers reporting that its presence will destroy life and now make you sick with the pandemic du jour. 
ABC Radio's flagship current affairs program, PM, reported last week, quote, a University of Queensland study found 60% of the classrooms it assessed had worrying carbon dioxide levels, putting students at greater risk of catching COVID. Apparently a high level of carbon dioxide signifies a lack of ventilation, which is technical woke lingo for saying the classroom windows are shut. One expert called for CO2 monitors in every classroom. We here at ADHTV call for teachers to open the windows when the room gets a bit stuffy. In other climate crisis news, Greens Senator David Shoebridge has called for a four-day working week to help people deal with the mental health problems caused by the weather. He said that if the government can arbitrarily call a day off to commemorate the death of Queen Elizabeth, then it can give us a day off every week to help us cope with the non-existent increase in, in extreme weather events. How all these panicking workers should be able to enjoy these days off when they will inevitably be ruined by floods, cyclones and bushfires, Shoebridge didn't say. Mind you, if he proposed a seven-day weekend for himself and all his fellow Green MPs, I'm sure even the Chamber of Commerce and Industry would agree that this would constitute a productive contribution to the nation. Well, despite the impressive pageantry, symbolism and enduring values wrapped up in Queen Elizabeth's death and the transition of power to her son, King Charles, there were also some compelling voices that found the whole thing slightly unsettling. And no, I'm not talking about Stan Grant. Paul Kingsnorth, an English writer, was forced by the funeral to reflect on whether the enduring values of the monarchy were still able to exist in modern Britain. This is because the British monarchy, and therefore all power and social structure, is based on the concept of sacral kingship. I'll get my next guest, Perth, lawyer, Perth Law Professor Rocco Loyacano, to explain what that means in a minute. But first, here is what Kings North wrote about the need for a monarchy of some kind in every society. Quote, there is a throne at the heart of every culture, whether we know it or not, and that if we cast out its inhabitants, its previous inhabitant, and the entire worldview that went along with it, we had better understand that we plan to what we plan to replace it with. Someone or something is going to sit on that throne whether we know it or not. I can't think of any society in history which has believed, as ours does, that all that matters is matter, that nothing resides above the spires of the abbey, that there is no throne. If there were any cultures like that, well, they didn't last to tell us about it." Unquote. He may as well have been talking about Australia there. We are a secular society, but our renewed enthusiasm for the monarchy suggests we at least acknowledge the need for a throne and for us to know whoever is sitting on it. Let's get Rocco in to talk about it. Rocco, welcome. Good to be with you, Fred. Firstly, Rocco, what is sacral kingship? Well, what, the, what Kings North was talking about there was the notion that the Queen, uh, because of her steadfast belief in God, belief in God, believed that she was God's anointed one. Now, at her coronation, um, which the Archbishop of Canterbury mentioned last night, 
As soon as she walked in, the first thing she did was that she spent two minutes in prayer to pledging her allegiance to God before her subjects pledged allegiance to her. And during the ceremony, she would have been anointed. In fact, she was anointed with what's known as the oil of chrism, which is a sacred oil uh, used for Christian sacraments, which uh, means that we are God's anointed one. And it dates back to biblical times when uh, Saul was anointed king of the Israelites by Samuel, by oil being placed upon him. And that's what it that's what it gets back to. It doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, it doesn't act mean at all, a divine right of kings. It means that the ultimate power is, is, is God and that God uh, anoints the monarch to protect and serve his people. But the divine right of kings, what do they mean by the right? Well, the, the right that, um, and this is what got the French monarchs into trouble, um, is that their word was like God's law. What they, what they did went and there was uh, nothing, um, nothing that anyone could do about it. And that's where they fell, whereas the British monarchy prospered because it realised that, yes, while uh, they're, they're, they're God's anointed one, they are there to serve the people. And over time, uh, what happened is that uh, more power was transferred the Queen's power or the monarch's power is transferred to the people but always exercised in the monarch's name rather than the monarch having absolute power. Well, last night's service was moving uh, mostly because it was so religious. I mean, we tended to forget about that about Elizabeth while she was alive, that she was, you know, God's representative in some ways and she was so religious. What aspects of it were most moving to you, Rocco? Of... I always enjoy uh, the hymns. I mean, the hymns are just uh, so uplifting. And uh, the hymns that were chosen, um, I believe, were the Queen's favourite psalms. Um, uh, and that, that, for me, uh, is always, uh, is always uh, inspiring. Um, and also the readings that were chosen, um, and they, they underscored um, her faith, uh, not only in God, but also uh, in the resurrection. Um, I mean, the, the gospel reading that the Prime Minister Liz Trust read, um, you know, I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, and when the time comes, I will call you uh, to be with me. And that's uh, what God has done now. He's called the Queen to be with him in that place that he has prepared for her. What was the significance of the quote from Corinthians, death, where is your sting? What did that uh, resonate for you? Well, that's uh, straight out of the, the Easter liturgy um, and the belief in the hope of the resurrection, which um, the, the Queen obviously um, believed in so, so steadfastly, that, yes, we mourn and, and it's right to mourn the dead, but there is hope in that at, at, at the end we will all rise again on the last day. Um, death is conquered. Death isn't the end. Um, that quote from, from Kings North that people believe that beyond this world there is nothing. Well, uh, Christians believe that beyond this world there is something better and there is, is something more, much more beautiful than this world can ever provide. You, you said this tradition goes back a long way. How far back does it go? It goes back before the Reformation, if I'm not mistaken, which means it's also a Catholic tradition. That's, that's right. I alluded earlier to, to the biblical uh, reference to Saul uh, being anointed as king of Israel, and that's where it draws its inspiration. Uh, but the anointing of the, the oil of chrism is to be found in, in, uh, in Catholic sacraments, uh, baptism, and at confirmation, and indeed uh, the Anglicans have kept that. But the actual coronation service where the queen is anointed with the oil of chrism, uh, that wasn't touched following the Reformation. That's straight out of the, the Catholic ceremony of, of bishops. So 
there goes that link that goes back a thousand years uh, before before the Protestant Reformation. Well, there must be implications in this for Australia, Rocco. I mean, we are constantly being told that we need to become a republic, which, if I'm not mistaken, would essentially be a secular uh, republic or a secular type of constitution. What implications are there for Australia, having watched it all last night, seen the symbolism of it, the tradition, and the fact that more than half the world's population watched it, what, what should, should Australia be wary about removing itself from this tradition? Look, you, as a, you only have to look at, uh, like you say, the amount of people that watched it uh, and they were well and truly outside of the 14 nations that, that had the Queen and now Charles as, as head of state. We dispense with this tradition uh, at our peril because... What are we going to replace it with? It's all well and good to say we need to we need to move with the times. We cannot have this anymore. But what are we going to replace it with? I mean, the reason why it has stood a thousand years, the reason why uh, we we have these ideals of democracy, equality before the law, uh, innocent and unproven guilty, all those things, they're things that, that are inherited from this from this tradition. Um, and interestingly enough, the the values of tolerance and of freedom. Uh, that uh, that this system bequeathed to us uh, are, are definitely no definitely according to its practitioners and what has been said by its practitioners have no place in a godless society. Uh, they claim they preach tolerance and the, and they preach equality, but uh, when it, when all is said and done, um, nothing could be further from nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, you only have to look at any time uh, an objection is raised to. Uh, to legislation put before a parliament that limits or places huge uh, obstacles to religious freedom and it's dismissed uh, haughtily as, uh, as just bigotry, um, whereas, whereas the actual effect of that is the complete opposite of what the system has bequeathed to us of allowing religious freedom and allowing uh, freedom of expression and equality before the law. Yeah, tolerance and freedom are not high priorities for the left, I'd have to say. But as, as Paul Kingsnorth said, someone or something is going to sit on that throne, whether we know it or not. Now, some people say Charles can never be as popular as Elizabeth, but at least we know who he is. It's not such a bad thing to have Charles as our king, is it? Well, look, people will people are drawing comparisons uh, with, with King Charles and uh, and Edward the Seventh, um, Edward the Seventh uh, was the was Queen Victoria's son, and uh, he had a terrible reputation as a womanizer and uh, uh, and feckless. And indeed, Victoria actually kept him away from from a lot of official functions because it was seen as an embarrassment. Um, but in the end, um, he he proved to be a, a very good king. And indeed, people talk of the Edwardian era. Um, uh, whether we see a, a second Carolinian era, um, time will tell, but at least you know, as you say, what you're getting. Um, and uh, whereas if we were to dispense with that and have some elected politician uh, or some other celebrity um, as a head of state, I, I shudder to think uh, what, what the consequences uh, might be for, for our system of government and also the traditions um, that have stood us the test of time. It was for no, uh, it was no coincidence um, and it wasn't out of any sense of quaintness 
that the framers of our constitution humbly relied upon the blessing of Almighty God when they brought this nation together. And um, I don't think anyone can argue um, that Australia in its history has indeed been blessed. And we continue to be. I mean, what people seem to forget is that the world is a much better place than it was even in at Elizabeth's heyday. I mean, you know, the, we, we may lament the changing of culture, but uh, as far as prosperity goes and, and in many ways liberty, we've never had it better. So we should be optimistic about Charles's reign, shouldn't we? Yes, and uh, that's why we say you know, the Queen is dead, long live the King because that underlines the, the transference, not only of power, but of the guardianship of our traditions, of our freedom, of our constitutional democracy from, from one generation uh, to the next. And uh, with, with privilege and with responsibility sometimes comes balance. Uh, people uh, and, and Charles, people have underlined Charles's statements in the past, but based on what we've seen over the last over the last week or so, um, he has underscored his responsibility as the guardian of those constitutional guarantees, and it behoves us um, to to give him a chance and to show um, that he, to allow him the chance to be able to display what he can do as king. Um, bad kings, bad monarchs come and go, but the values and the and the the, the principles that underlie it will remain forever. Now, before you go, let's talk about the election coming up in Italy this weekend. The Brothers of Italy look likely to win and their leader, Giorgia Maloney, will become the country's first female prime minister. What does this mean for Italy and its role in the European Union, Rocco? Uh, Maloney uh, has been described uh, in some quarters as possibly the most dangerous woman in Europe um, because of her previous statements uh, calling for Italy's membership of the European Union to either uh, be uh, removed or for it to leave the European Union entirely or for Italy to seriously rethink its uh, role in the European Union. And I think that's what will happen. Uh, I don't see Italy leaving the European Union um, for many reasons. Uh, it's a founding member. Um, and as much as I personally, uh, I wouldn't mind seeing an Ital exit along the lines of a Brexit, um, I think the reality is that won't happen. Um, the thing with Meloni is, is that although uh, the Brothers of Italy, uh, Fratelli d'Italia, as they call it in Italian, it's actually drawn from the first words of the national anthem, um, uh, has been labelled a neo-fascist party, but of course the left do that because um, obviously the left's record in government over there hasn't, hasn't, uh, set, it, hasn't set the world on fire. Um, uh, the, and, of course, some of the members of the Brother of Italy come out of the old uh, uh, post-fascist uh, MSI, Movimento Sociale Italiano Party, which was formed after the Second World War. Uh, Meloni uh, actually believes in Anglo-American values of liberty. Uh, one, of her, uh, one of her great heroes is Sir Roger Scruton, and uh, she uh, has quoted him many times uh, in, in her public pronouncements. Um, and she underscores the things that conservative, conservatism, as Scruton said, isn't about, uh, is so much, not so much about uh, what, uh, what we want to replace with, but it's underlying what is so good that we need to keep. Um, and, and conservative isn't so much about um, worrying about what will come afterwards, but it, keeping what is good 
uh, about our society and about and about our our, our Western Western traditions. Uh, Meloni uh, has gone on record uh, as uh, being fiercely anti-woke. She's argued against the removal of nativities, uh, nativity scenes from um, from uh, schools. So, and she also uh, believes in the Reagan ideals of liberty and uh, individual individual rights and freedoms. And her party was the only one to oppose the brutal vaccine and passport and COVID restrictions uh, under Mario Draghi, the classic globalist, former president of the European Bank Prime Minister. So. I think if she's elected, uh, Italy may just survive. Oh, reason for optimism all over the place. Rocco Liacano, thank you so much for your time. Great, great. Thanks for having me, Fred. That's Perth law academic Rocco Loyacano. And before I go, you might have seen this exciting program in the Florida Keys in the United States designed to eliminate a nasty species of mosquito called Aedes aegypti. That's the species responsible for spreading Zika, dengue and yellow fever to humans, diseases that affect and sometimes kill hundreds of millions of people a year around the world. A company in the United States called Oxitech has developed a method to reduce this particular species by breeding male specimens with a self-limiting gene. Essentially, these males mate with females and any female offspring die quickly. The population then decreases again when the surviving males have fewer females to mate with. In the Florida Keys, Aedes aegypti represent about 4% of the mosquito population, but they cause all of the mosquito-borne diseases in humans. But now, Oxitec is on the case. Oxitec began the process of releasing 140,000 male eggs in six locations along the Keys. That is part of a live experiment greenlit by the EPA. This is absolutely wonderful technology. Would the world be a better place without Aedes aegypti mosquitoes? Nobody seems to be arguing to the contrary. It makes sense. Whatever role mosquitoes play in the food chain can always be played by the other species of mosquito. But it would be a brave researcher who argued for a similar program to reduce the population of great white sharks, despite them also being a small percentage of the total shark population and being a danger to humans. So what's the difference? Well, environmentalists argue that great white sharks are an apex predator and their removal would cause the entire food chain beneath them to collapse. This is clearly rubbish. Nature is never in balance. It is constantly evolving. Species come and go, even apex predators. No, the real reason environmentalists cannot bear the thought of a world without great white sharks is that they worship them. CSIRO shark researcher Barry Bruce famously said on the Today Show in January 2015 that the people of Newcastle in New South Wales, whose beaches at the time had been closed for 10 straight days after an inundation of great white sharks, needed to show the sharks, quote, respect. Greenies routinely call great white sharks Majestic, awesome, noble, and of course, beautiful. One West Australian researcher called them, quote, guardians of 
biodiversity. In his book, Great White, Australian author James Woodford said they were a, quote, work of art. They're just a fish, just as Aedes aegypti are just a mosquito. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for your company. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night at 8pm for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH-TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine o'clock. Good night.